Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we are delighted once again to sit and to study and to learn of you. Lord, we count it a privilege that you have invited us to come and dine at your table, to feast on the rich nourishment that is the the, the body and the blood of Yeshua, our Messiah. In fact, our Master invited us that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you, you'll have no part in my kingdom. So, Lord, we desire to dine with you. We desire to fellowship with you and have this meal with you. We thank you for sending your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. We know, Lord, that you have drawn us close together one uh, to another, Jew and Gentile, uh, bearing the banner of Messiah, proudly uh, recognizing that at the cross that uh, all of um, all uh, uh, ethnicities and distinctions of the flesh uh, are are brought to uh, a level ground, and for that reason, Lord, we we don't boast of our Jewishness. We don't boast. Of our of our non-Jewishness, we don't boast of our male or female or slave or free. Rather, we recognize that in Messiah, these distinctions are are brought on an equal footing one with another. They don't disappear; rather, they are all given uh, um, preeminence in the sense that uh, you extend your love to us. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the Book of Galatians. Thank you for the students. Thank you for this time that we can spend together with one another. I pray that you will um, be with us in body and mind. I pray that you'll bless us, touch us, heal us. Lord, blessed are you, Lord, our God, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. Thank you, Lord, for your healing. Heal us, and we will be healed. Uh, be with us tonight as we embark on another uh, round of Torah study, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Let's date stamp our recording tonight. For those of you who are joining me live, it is October the 15th, Saturday evening, 2016. And just want to remind everyone that we have decided per vote that uh, Saturday evenings will be the permanent uh, time that we meet together. So um, if you've been meeting with us on Tuesday evenings for so long, um, we want to have you switch your calendar and adjust 
uh, meet with us on Saturday evenings instead. Same time, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here on Skype. Um, if you want details, head on out to my website, tatesatoro.com, and click on the Galatians commentary link at the top, and just scroll down to the page. You'll find all the details for the study there. Okay, let's open in some liturgy. Uh, all liturgy we've been using for this particular section that we're in uh, has been the uh, Birkat uh, Torah and the uh, passage out of the New Testament. This time I'm still going to use the um, Birkat Torah, but this time the, the, the New Testament patch is going to switch a little bit. So, the blessing for uh, engaging in Torah study, this is just your standard blessing that you can find in any Siddur, prayer book, etc. Um, those of you who are in the Live study with me tonight. You can look at your screen. I've got it pulled up for you. Let's read the English first. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouth of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together Know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches the Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you. And may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Okay. Now let's go back and read the uh, Hebrew of that same blessing. The Hebrew reads, Anachnu fatzeetze enu fatzeetze e amcha beit Yisrael kulano yodeshmecha avolom de Torah tekalishma baruchata Adonai hamla made Torah laamo Yisrael baruchata Adonai lohinu melacha olam asherer bachar banu mechol haamin vnatan lanuet Torah to baruchata Adonai notein ha Torah ibrachacha Adonai vayishmeracha yerot and for our uh, selection out of the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, etc., this time I switched over to Galatians chapter 3, uh, the first six verses there. Since we're going to be talking a little bit about Abraham, I thought I'd just uh, put these two, past, these two concepts together in Galatians 3 about um, either being perfected by the flesh or being perfected by um, by believing in God, how do you want to be counted as righteous in God's sight? And this verse, of course, this passage has been used quite prominently in discussions between uh, traditional Christians and uh, Messianics, uh, those who follow after a semblance of Torah of Moshe, and those who choose not to recognize uh, that following. And so this verse gets, again, caught up in the middle. It's one of those verses that it's in a, in a tug of war. So I thought I'd play with this one during our um, study on uh, section 10 tonight. Here's the ESV. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly uh, portrayed as crucified. 
Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then the verse 6 is the one that really jumps off the page to me. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I stopped there kind of in the midstream of Paul's thought um, to turn towards the Greek of that same passage. This time I've got, for those of you who are in the class, I've got the um, the interlinear version pulled up, not just the Greek. So if you look on the page, I'm going to be reading the Greek. You can either follow along in the Greek itself or the interlinear, if you can read that. And the English translation, which is kind of wooden, shows up in red underneath that. And the Greek reads something like this. O anoi toi galatai, tis humas abaskanen, te Lithia me pethesthai, hois cat aphalmus, Jesus Christus proe grafe esta Romanos. Verse 2. Tuto manen thelo mathen afhuman ex ergo namu top numa labete, e ex aques aques pistios. And verse 3. Hutos anoitoi este, in examenoi pnumati. Nun, as I drop down, nun sarki epateleste, to salta epathete eke, ege kai eke. Verse 5. Ho un epicoragon, human topenuma kai in ergon dunames en human ex ergon namu ek e ex acoes bistios. And then the final verse, verse 6. Kathos Abraham epistusen to theu kai. Elogiste, auto, ois, I'm sorry, ace, decaiusunane, there's our uh, righteousness verse, the very last uh, few words, ace decaiusunane, counted to him as righteousness. And we'll stop there. So we've got this idea of God recognizing Abraham as a righteous man. And Paul puts the challenge in front of us. He throws down the gauntlet to the existing uh, Torah communities of his day. Was Abraham justified by his works? Quote, unquote. Was he justified by the flesh? Was he justified by what Paul describes as this phrase, works of the law? Or did Abraham receive this dikaiosune, this this, uh, label from God? Did he receive it in some other way? And it's really a challenge for us today. Are we going to rely on our own self-effort, or are we going to rely on God's saving power to bring us into right relationship with God? Are we going to rely on our ethnicity as Jews? Are we going to rely on our good works as human beings? Or are we going to surrender to the saving power of Messiah Yeshua and allow Him to bring us into the relationship known as the Kaiosune? Well, it's up to us. Do we choose God, or do we choose our own flesh? Let's talk about that tonight. This section at the top of page 82 is entitled, The Promise, Trust and Obey. And we're on section 10 of our commentary. Um, I mentioned last week that we're almost halfway through. I, I, I was really wrong. We've got 180 pages, so we've got 100 more pages left to go. So we're not really quite half the way through yet. Let me read the commentary. It's about, uh, I think this section is 8 
pages long, so we're not going to hit all of it tonight. But um, I want to remind everyone who is in class with us tonight that uh, we meet for about an hour, and then we engage in a little bit of lively chat after the study that does not get recorded or uploaded to iTunes. So if you'd like to engage in the after-class chat, you're certainly welcome to come on out. Join us each night live via Skype, and you can join in the after-class after chat where I let the students open up their microphones and we just kind of uh, um, discuss anything that comes to mind. All right, let's read. Section 10, The Promise, Trust and Obey. Well, my dear friends, we've finally come full circle. We began our investigation into Galatians in section 1, Brit Milah, with the patriarch Avraham in physical circumcision, and we conclude here in section 10, The Promise, Trust and Obey, with the patriarch Avraham and circumcision. We're coming back to circumcision. A Christian attempt at disproving the validity of the important covenantal sign of circumcision, in my opinion, has caused much strife and division among the body of believing Jews and Gentiles. And of course, this causes strife because it's no secret that most Jews and Gentiles who still embrace a semblance of Torah observance, i.e. the Torah of Moshe, still recognize and practice circumcision of the flesh, meaning we don't hold to the idea that Jesus abrogated that, that aspect of the law so that it's no longer relevant for us as Jews and Gentiles in covenant with God. In other words, we still circumcise. But, um, as I keep reading, the matter is made clear, in my opinion, when we understand that Hashem never meant for this sign to secure the promises for the believer. Right? Uh, I think that's where unbelieving Israel of the first century went off track. They got off base. They got off they, their, their cart started veering off into the ditch is when they took the covenant of circumcision, Brit Milah, which is, that's what the Hebrew term means, Brit Milah. They took the covenant of circumcision and instead of, instead of recognizing in Genesis chapter 9 that it was the um, sign of the uh, covenant with God, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant circumcision, instead of recognizing that, uh, first century Israel had essentially turned circumcision, physical circumcision, into a sign of Jewish identity, a sign of ethnicity, a sign of of covenant membership via um, ethnicity that was exclusively recognized as legally right, legally uh, standing Jewishness. So es essentially, Jews were turning Gentiles into Jews for the ostensible sake of joining the covenant. They, uh, Gentiles became covenant members, supposedly. Um, supposedly became covenant members once they became Jews. And until they became Jews, they were not recognized by the leading Jewish authorities as right-standing covenant members. So the whole thing got all obscured. It got, the, the waters got muddied. But we don't have to follow into that error. What I say in my commentary is um, this sign, right, circumcision itself, it was to be the sign that uh, a person was connected via covenant to a larger family. So, in essence, what God said in, in Genesis is that covenant allows you to join the, the people group known as Israel, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, and you don't change your ethnicity in the process. You still remain a Gentile if you take on circumcision. You, just, you simply become a Gentile Israelite. Now, now, of course, I'm importing that term Jew in, back into the text. wasn't there in Genesis chapter nine when the when the when circumcision was being uh, talked about and things like that. I think it's chapter nine. Now I'm drawing a blank. I'll have to look that up. So let's keep reading. 
Is circumcision valid for the Jews today? I think it is. Yes, it is. Uh, we, we, there, there's this really lengthy discussion about how much of the Torah is still relevant for unbelieving Israel, even though they have failed to embrace the new covenant through Yeshua and recognize that, that God recognizes God as a covenant-keeping God and that God has made provision for the new covenant even though they're not embracing it. Is God even recognizing their Torah obedience through what they might call the Old Covenant? Uh, it's a lengthy discussion, one that I actually am engaged in right now with some of my students in class. Um, and if you want to join that discussion, join us during the after-class after chat. I think yes, the answer is yes. Uh, circumcision is still valid for Jews today because of the unending nature of God's agreement with men on a covenant level. Even the covenant that God made with men on, an, on what I've used as a term natural or earthly level, a limited perspective, the covenant that he made with Israel, uh, the covenant that he um, ratified through Moses and through the, uh, the shedding of the blood at Mount Sinai. Um, I think that circumcision is still valid for today. So I don't see that Yeshua is uprooting, the new co uprooting circumcision, physical circumcision, through the new covenant. So yes, in this way, we, Jews and Gentiles, forever identify physically and spiritually with the unending covenant made with our father Abraham, right? Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So I think it's valid for males. Now, I ask in my commentary, is it practical for non-Jewish believers, right? For Gentile believers who have joined Israel, uh, even though the covenant, uh, even though the Motor of Moshe uh, uh, enjoins a covenant, uh, I'm sorry, circumcision for males, is it practical? I didn't say is it applicable, but is it practical? I think, unfortunately, at this juncture in history, it's not practical. It is applicable, but it's not practical. Why would I say that? Because until the church gets right its view of the Torah and the trappings of legalism, I think it's somewhat discouraged by Messianic Jewish rabbis, and rightfully so. It's kind of like the example of um, an unsaved person entering into a church that is teaching that baptism is the method by which you become saved. You guys have heard of these types of churches? Baptism is a mark of salvation, not just faith in Yeshua, but baptism itself. I think Church of God or Church of Christ in God or Church of God in Christ or some, one of those types of churches uh, uses this type of, doc, uh, this type of um, belief. So if an unbeliever uh, was raised in that uh, environment where they believed that baptism saved them, and then, say, switched churches and came over maybe to a Messianic congregation and, and was really just desiring to get baptized because they felt that they wouldn't be saved unless they were baptized. If I were the preacher of that church, the pastor, the Messianic rabbi, etc., I would cleverly and carefully withhold baptism from that individual until they can understand that baptism doesn't save you. It's not baptism that saves you. Baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward reality. It's, it's walking in the footsteps of Messiah because he told us to be baptized. It's obedience to a commandment. But it doesn't bring you into a saving relationship. Baptism doesn't save you, as I understand from the, from the Bible. So if a person was preoccupied with baptism in that manner, I would withhold it from them. Well, that's the same kind of halakhic kind of group policy concept that I think Paul would have imposed on his Gentile uh, listeners in the first century. And I think that's the same one that we should be using today if people are preoccupied with physical circumcision because they think that it turns them into a Jew or makes them into a genuine covenant member, then I would withhold circumcision even though it is a valid biblical commandment. You guys catch my analogy? All right, let's keep reading. 
So I am delighted to encounter, I'm sorry, let me back up a sentence. I'm not saying that Gentiles cannot undergo this ritual, right? What I am saying is that I'm delighted to encounter those few Gentiles who truly understand its meaning enough, such as uh, Titus, I'm sorry, not Titus, such as uh, um, uh, Timothy, Timothy. Um, who do understand it's mean enough to go to go under the knife? Uh, there's a pun there, obviously. It is, it, you know, is it necessary for the salvation of an individual? No, it never was. Circumcision doesn't save any more than baptism saves. And I think the test case that we read about in Acts chapter 16, where Paul circumcises Timothy, who, according to first century reckoning, as far as I can tell, was a Gentile, um, uh, because his uh, because of the question of, of one of his parents not being Jewish, so the first century would have recognized him as not a Jew, but a Gentile, even though his mother was Jewish. Um, by today's reckoning, we, we might recognize him as a Jew because of his mother being Jewish, but in the first century, it was reversed. It was more determined by your father, and so since his father was a Greek, mother was a Jew, this means Timothy was more than likely a Gentile, and yet Paul circumcises him in Acts 16. Does this mean that Timothy became a Jew? I don't think so. I think it's simply Paul demonstrating that circumcision, physical circumcision, is valid for Gentile believers in Messiah and doesn't turn you into a Jew. In other words, Paul was proving the very thing that he's teaching in the book of Galatians. So let's keep reading my commentary. I think when we study the book of Galatians, we, I, th I think we should really, really keep in mind the fact that Paul uses Abraham very, very prominently. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, like I just started reading. Also, if you ever get a chance to sit down with two Bibles open, open one of your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, and the other Bible open to Romans chapter 4, and just read the two back to back. And it is a wonderful read, because Paul masterfully uses Abraham in both of those chapters to demonstrate this very important truth. And we're going to kind of talk about this idea. All right, What makes Avraham such a great role model of faith for both Jews and Gentiles is not only did he trust in the word of Hashem to receive this label Dikaiusune in, in Galatians 3.6 uh, that I just read, but Avraham was also privy to have God look into his life and speak this promise. Listen to this. The Lord saw into Abraham's future and predicted that his offspring, that is, sons of Jacob, sons of Abraham, right, would also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. Let's look at this uh, from Genesis 18, 17 through 19. What does it say? I like the way this is strung together. Um, I can't remember which version this is from. This is probably... Um, this is probably David Stern's CJB, Complete Jewish Bible, because of the Hebrew words. Quote, Adonai said, Should I hide from Avraham what I am about to do, inasmuch as Avraham is sure to become a great nation, I'm sorry, a great and strong nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him? For I have made myself known to him so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai and to do what is right, and just so that, notice the so that's, right? Notice how God is stringing together these these uh, clauses together with this term so that, in the, in the Hebrew I think it's um, lima'an, so that Adonai may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now, um, listen to uh, the way I uh, uh, comment on this. I think that this is a fantastic statement from the mouth of the one 
who sees every human possibility. God can see the future, even though we have free will, right? Figure that one out. Wrap your mind around that. Free will is, you know, God, God, foresees, God foresees all, but yet free will is given. Um, would that we, Jews and Gentiles today, might have Hashem pronounce this very same blessing over our families today, right? Where he says that, that um, uh, uh, I'm going to, uh, I know that uh, uh, this person is going to become a st- great and strong nation and all the people will be blessed. Listen to that, that wonderful blessing. We want God to pronounce that blessing over our families today. Don't you agree? What must we do? What must we do? Well, listen up. The divine, what I call tandem-like actions spoken here, uh, must not be taken too lightly. What we see firstly is that God promises to be faithful to make himself known to us. And that's paramount. That's where genuine relationship starts. God reveals himself to us. Of course, we know that this is in the person of Yeshua. So then, as I keep reading my commentary, we, like faithful Abraham, are then enabled by God's Spirit and subsequently covenant-bound to obey the teachings of our Heavenly Father. Because God reveals himself to us. God brings us into relationship with himself. God bridges the gap. God opens our eyes, brings us into relationship with ourselves, with himself, and then we become covenant-bound to obey his teachings. And then, as I say, such teachings that God reveals to us are uniquely designed to bring about a righteous behavior in our lives, which has the effect of aligning our lives to be the object of God's righteous promises. So it's based on this promise, this, this, this maxim that we can find in the Bible that essentially God doesn't bless wickedness, right? Read through the Torah, read through the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, and you'll get the point. God doesn't bless wickedness. Consistently throughout the Bible, God punishes wickedness. God punishes uh, remorseless sin and, and, and continued and um, um, hateful uh, actions towards men and towards God. God punishes sin. And therefore, God, the opposite is true. God blesses righteousness. God blesses obedience. So if the teachings of God are designed to bring about a righteous behavior in our lives, well, then what does that make us? It makes us the recipient of the blessings of God. But God gets the credit. Because it's God himself who opened our eyes in the first place. God himself who revealed himself to Abraham uh, via the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 15. God revealed himself to Abraham via the word of the Lord, causing Abraham to cast his faith on the word of the Lord, Genesis 15, 6. And what does it say then? Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to his account as righteousness. That's what Paul brings into the uh, Galatians uh, three ten passage that I just read. Abraham belie- uh, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, that's a lift, of course, from um, uh, Galatians. I'm sorry, Genesis fifteen six, Galatians three six, Genesis fifteen six. Right, and Paul uses it again in other parts of his books. So as I keep reading, the if we look at the verse that I just read out of Genesis eighteen seventeen through nineteen. I want you to carefully notice the syntax, meaning the word order, the the, the phrases, the way they line up around this idea of uh, so that, so that, so that. It's kind of this cause and effect going on, right? The syntax of the above pasukim, the verses, are hinting at this very reality, the reality that 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 this kind of um, God reveals Himself first, and then God 
reveals or uh, uh, sends his words into our lives, his teachings into our lives, and promises to bless us. And then because he blesses us, we are because we are obedient, we then line up with the blessings of God. So, as I say in my commentary, there's this running continuity suggested by the connecting phrases, so that, right? Um, we see that God promises to bless Abraham, and then God makes himself known to Abraham, and then God gives orders to Abraham to keep the way of Adonai and to do what's right and just, so that God may bless Abraham with the, what God has promised him. See? See how that comes? It comes full circle. It makes a nice little circle. God promises to bless Abraham. God reveals himself to Abraham. God gives his, ble- his Torah to Abraham, his, his teachings to him and to his children. That's what it means by um, giving orders to his children and to his household to keep the way of Adonai. That's a, a, a phrase that, that signals uh, uh, the righteousness revealed through the Torah, behavioral righteousness. To do what's right, that's behavioral righteousness, as well as uh, uh, um, um, leading towards forensic righteousness. And, and, and so it's in this way that God brings about the promise. It comes full circle. So what I say is that we must, like faith for Avraham, trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given us through Yeshua, our Messiah. This is why this section is called the promise. What is that promise? What is that promise? Let's keep reading in my commentary. Let's read this promise out of um, Romans 8, 28-30. And then I'm going to uh, pull up a chapter out of... Um, out of Galatians a little bit and, and just exegete for a moment. Let's read Romans first, 8, 28 through 30. This is a familiar passage for most, but I think we cut ourselves short because we stop short of reading the whole passage. Quote, Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for good, for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with his purpose. So we see this divine kind of cause and effect going on. Because those whom he knew in advance, that sounds like what God said to Abraham, right? I looked into his future and saw that I'm going to bless him. Because those whom he knew in advance, he also determined in advance that would be conformed to the pattern of his son. Why? Here's that so that clause again, the so that, right? Because it's linked. It links these the clause A with clause B, kind of cause and effect. So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, many brothers. And those whom he thus determined in advance... He also called. Listen to these promises, how they're all stacked up on one another. These are so wonderful. Whom Those whom he determined in advance, he also called. And those whom he called, he also caused to be considered righteous. And those whom he caused to be considered righteous, he also glorified. End quote. So this is God at work. This is God's promise um, being uh, brought to reality in the lives of those who who God knows in advance, just like Papa Abraham of old was spoken about there in the passage I just read in Genesis. God looked into his future and into the future of his offspring. By the way, that offspring is you if you name the name of Messiah tonight. That's me because I named the name of Messiah. We are Abraham's offspring. God looked into Abraham's future and saw that Abraham would be um, would be keeping the ways of, of the Lord because God revealed himself to him. God enabled Abraham to keep the ways of the Lord and therefore to be a recipient of the blessings and the promises. And the, these two passages, as the way I see it, they work together. 
ultimately, ultimately the promise is of inheritance uh, through the Son Yeshua. But it also includes the earthly blessings that follow along with keeping the ways of God. What did Yeshua say? I came that they might have life and have life more abundantly. Not just life in the age to come, the Olam Haba, but also life here and now in the Olam Hazeh. So let's keep reading in my passage, uh, my commentary, and then I want to jump over real quick to um, Galatians and, and see this as well. We usually stop at the first verse. Verse, you know, we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called in accordance with His purpose. We usually stop at the first birth verse, but if we read further, it informs us of our true identity in Messiah. And what is this identity? What does Paul call us? The righteousness of God in Messiah. I think he says that in, uh, is it in Philippians? Righteous heirs according to trusting faithfulness. This is our true identity. This is how God sees us. He doesn't see us as sinners. I've heard this slogan in Christian uh, churches, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Not anymore. If you name the name of Jesus, you're not a sinner. God doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. So I was a sinner, but now I've been saved by grace. I'm no longer a sinner in God's eyes. I think God doesn't see me that way. He sees me as his, his, uh, his chosen, his beloved, his child, son of Abraham. He's brought me into the family. I'm part of the body. Um, and God doesn't look at sin. He, my, my, my status has changed in God's sight. I'm no longer a guilty sinner. I've been acquitted because of what Messiah did for me. So let's keep reading. Because of this reality, this new identity that we have in Messiah, uh, it causes us to be called as faithful Abraham was called, Dikaiosune, righteous, or tzaddik, or tzedakah in the Hebrew. So Abraham became a tzaddik. He became a righteous person, a dikaiosune, as Paul uses in his Galatians passage. In fact, um, let me just pull up that passage real quick. Uh, Let's read it out of... Let's read it out of the ESV real quick. For those of you who are in my uh, class, you'll see I'm just pulling up right now real quick the Bible Hub webpage because I can uh, navigate through the Hebrew and the Greek at the same time. But let's turn to Galatians real quick. I just want to show you this for you. Show you this in Galatians 4. Um, let's see. We don't want the interlinear here for a moment. We actually want the ESV. There we go. So this is basically... Um, I'm sorry, not Galatians 4, Galatians 3. So I started out by reading these the first six verses, but uh, uh, if I were to continue reading, which I may do next week, uh, starting in verse 7 where I left off, um, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This, of course, would be sons of faith is an indication of Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Verse 8 of Galatians 3, And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the, all the nations be blessed. Right? That's a reference to Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when we're looking at this promise, um, we can scroll down, say, to... Um, uh, Maybe verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And the you all is referring to Jews and Gentiles. It's not, it's not merely Jews who were born into 
natural covenant status be, when they when they were born into the family clan of, of 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 Jacob or the family clan of Israel. There's a natural covenant status that's given to them or extended to them because it was promised to Abraham's physical offspring as well as to a spiritual offspring, Jews and Gentiles. But it it does include the physical offspring. Otherwise, the promises are nonsense. So it uh, uh, limited covenant status or natural covenant status or um, earthly covenant status, whatever words you want to assign to it, are, are attached to the covenant that God cut with sons of Jacob through the Torah of Moshe according to the flesh, etc., etc. But now Paul's trying to let them know that through Messiah they've been brought into the new covenant and they have been brought into this status of sons of Abraham the same way that Abraham was actually brought into the, the lasting covenant himself through faith. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of Abraham. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I talked about that last week, how that we put on Christ like a garment. Therefore, that's why we can say in verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3 here, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not the ethnic and 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 um, uh, a gender identities that secure our location and our place in the lasting uh, covenant with God. The lasting covenant status is not secured by by the flesh, which would include Jew, Gentile, slave, free, uh, male, female. That's the fleshly distinctions. Not that those are not important. They certainly are important. But Paul's trying to get us to understand that, how do we say? The, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level for everyone. It's level. There's neither, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And then verse 29, the crucial verse that kind of um, brings it full circle. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to what? The promise. So that's why this section is called The Promise. Trust and obey. So let's talk about our responsibility to the covenant. Now that we have been brought into the covenant via faith, the same way that Abraham was brought into the, uh, the new covenant, the renewed covenant, the lasting covenant, the spiritual covenant, the heavenly covenant, the one cut with the blood of Yeshua, not just the blood of animals. Now that we've been brought into this covenant, let's talk about uh, what our responsibility is. Let's pick it up, the reading and my commentary. Being declared righteous by Hashem, just like Abraham was, right? It is the goal of all men who seek Hashem, right? Why would you seek after God if, if you're not searching and seeking to be, declared, to be declared righteous? You want the blessing of God. And if God declares you righteous, well, then you know that you're going to be the recipient of the blessings of God. Because... God does not bless wickedness. God does not bless those. He does not ultimately and um, um, eternally bless those who are not righteous. That's why we read it in Romans chapter 8 there, that he, um, he, those whom he called to determine in advance, that, he would, that they would be ca uh, caused to be considered righteous. Right? Those whom he, God determines to be called righteous. Those are the ones that he will glorify. So we want this label. We want to be called righteous. But righteousness itself, as is the case with many concepts in the Bible, is portrayed in two, at least two, I'm going to describe two, at least two different aspects, or I, I say defined in two ways. I really should say described in two ways. There's what the Bible describes as behavioral 
righteousness. In other words, it's actually doing what is right. It's doing good according to the moral standards that God has laid out for all of mankind. Thus, man, when man breaks uh, God's laws by murdering, God recognizes that that is a breach of God's behavioral code of righteousness. So there is a code of righteousness that God reveals to every mankind, and if man does what he's supposed to do, if he does what's right, then he is counted as behaviorally righteous. And we see this more sharply focused as men, uh, um, as we come in line with what the Torah says, because we move from general revelation, which is essentially given to all of mankind, to more specific revelation, as is found in the Torah, that God gave to Israel first but then expanded to the rest of the world via uh, the, the pouring out of the Spirit uh, in Acts chapter 2. So we've got behavioral righteousness, actually doing what's right, and then we've got the second aspect of righteousness known as forensic righteousness, where, where we're regarded as righteous in the sense, in these two ways, right? There's two aspects to forensic righteousness itself. There's A... God clears a person of guilt for past sins. That's part of what it means to be declared as forensically righteous. A, God clears you of past sins, right? You're acquitted. And B, there's, this is a very important part, God gives this person a new human nature inclined to obey Hashem rather than rebel against him as of before. Understand? So God not only acquits us, but God also makes a down payment on the righteousness that he has given to us by, by pouring the Spirit out into our hearts without measure. The Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts so that we can actually perform the behavioral righteousness in accordance with the forensic righteousness. Does it make sense? Did I lose anyone? I hope I didn't lose anyone. I'm trying to speak kind of slowly and deliberately to drive the point home. When we get saved, God then enables us to actually walk into behavioral righteousness as is empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. So that the behavioral righteousness that we do, the obedience that we perform, the obedience to the Torah that we actually fall in line with, is not by our own strength, it's not by our own power, it's not even really by our own will. It's by God's will uh, being performed within us by the Holy Spirit, by the mind of Yeshua that has um, taken up residence within us because we take on the mind of Messiah, right? Uh, I mean, I'm speaking to the choir for some of you, but I, I, I have to make this point stressed. I have to stress this point because of the prevailing teaching, the common uh, theology that's taught in Christian circles that once we become saved, we overthrow Torah, we throw off Torah like some yoke that's been weighing us down our lives until we can get set free by the Messiah. And that's not it at all. The reality is that until we come to accept Messiah, the Torah, in fact, is a heavy burden. It is a heavy burden. It's a yoke. It's one that we cannot bear, but it's not, it's not that we can't bear it because, um, because we don't want to. It's we can't bear it because we're not really empowered to. We, we don't have the, we don't have the uh, strength to do it. We don't have the power to do it the way God wants us to do it. Um, we'll talk about this a little more. <clears throat> Let's keep reading. Uh, 
because because this this can really get complicated if we don't unpack it carefully, and this study on Galatians is going to deal with it a little later on. But right now, this is just kind of an overview. We're, we haven't really even got into the uh, nuts and bolts of the study. This is really the, kind of the overview. So we've got these two kinds of righteousness, behavioral righteousness and forensic righteousness. And within forensic righteousness, we've got these two aspects to it, uh, being acquitted and then being empowered. The way I see it, it all boils down to the evangelical notion of justification and sanctification. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines the word justify thusly, right? I just pulled this right out of the dictionary. A, to prove or show to be just, right, or reasonable. B, to show to have had a sufficient legal reason uh, to qualify oneself as a surety to, uh, by taking oath to the ownership of sufficient property. Two, the archaic usage uh, that the dictionary gives of justify is to administer justice to uh, be archaic absolve, right? And I highlighted absolve in my commentary because of the way that God acquits us, God absolves us of, of past sins, to judge, to regard, or to treat as righteous and worthy of salvation. In essence, God does this because of what Messiah has done. This, this again, is the whole substitutionary sacrifice uh, principle that's taught so clearly and uh, demonstrated so clearly by the animal sacrifices. The, uh, the, the animal pays the price for the sin that we commit in the times of period of its knock. Really, the person who committed the sin should have paid the price by himself dying on the altar. But instead, God allowed the uh, worshiper to approach God and to offer up the blood of an animal in the place of the worshiper's blood. Really, the animal died in place of the person. The person was set free that day, went free, and the person, uh, the animal lost its life. And clearly we see that this is a type and shadow of Yeshua. Yeshua did the same thing. God meted out the punishment that was due because of man, the sin of mankind. God meted out this punishment on the back of Yeshua when he sent him to the cross. And so Yeshua died. What does the, the, uh, the popular Christian song say? I now live because Christ died. And though he suffered, he suffered and died for me. He suffered and did it all for me. So, hallelujah. That's a great place to say hallelujah. Millard Eckerdson stated, um, in reference to sanctification, right, in relationship to justification, quote, sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God, end quote. So basically, these two sides of righteousness that I'm describing, behavioral righteousness is essentially sanctification. And forensic righteousness is essentially justification. And what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that as children of the living God, as sons of Abraham, because of what Yeshua has done, because of our placing our faith in him, we who identify with Messiah not only recognize and affirm that we are forensically righteous, that is, we're saved, but we must also recognize and attain to behavioral righteousness. We must uh, walk into sanctification because it is part and parcel with our salvation package. It's, part and, it's, it's commensurate with the fact that we really are saved. In other words... Um, we're going to get into this discussion about how James uh, shows us that it's not that faith is supposed to be void of works. Rather, 
genuine faith must be accompanied by genuine good works. And we know that's true, even as I get ahead of myself before the discussion, before reading the passage. Faith without works is dead, yet faith is, yet faith is vindicated by genuine good works. And what I postulate is that genuine good works are already described for us in the pages of the Torah. We don't have to recreate genuine works. We don't have to redefine holiness. We don't have to make up holiness on our own once we become genuine children of the living God, once we become saved. As Christians, it's not necessary for us to redefine holiness along some lines that would be different from what the Torah of Moses has already outlined for us is actually behavioral righteousness. See my point? So I see it as two sides of the same coin. Saved and sanctified, or justified and sanctified, behavioral righteous, forensic righteousness, um, they're part of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. Um, faith and works are two sides of the same coin. So we're going to see this. Let's see if I can take a bite out of this section for the next, say, five or ten minutes, and then I'll um, draw the study to a close, and we'll engage in the after-chat discussion. I want to demonstrate a good biblical view of trust and obedience by examining two of the New Testament's better-known yet seemingly opposing authors. We've got Shaul, Apostle Paul, and we've got Yaakov HaTzadik, James the Just. And the former, Paul, wrote some 13 or possibly 14 letters to the believing communities of his day, depending on whether or not you attribute Hebrews to Paul. And the latter, James, was the physical brother of our Lord Yeshua himself. So let's read this. Um, some see a contradiction between Paul and James on the teaching of justification. In fact, um, I think it was Luther, as we're going to see here. Luther had a problem with James. Paul emphatically taught that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, while James argued that a man is justified by faith and works. Right? Let's look at that passage in Romans. I'm sorry, in Galatians, real quick. Um, uh, uh, it was before having been, you not been to suffer so many things. Um, it's it's not by works of the law that we've been brought into right relationship. Paul hints at it here in the Galatians three ten passage. I'm sorry, the three one through six passage, but he says it directly in Romans. I'm sorry, in Galatians uh, two fifteen and sixteen. So it's this idea of Paul is highlighting. That justification, this, this Greek word dikaiosune, righteousness, is attained by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Yeah, he says it right there in um, uh, Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness, um, did he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It was by the hearing of faith that Abraham was brought into the relationship of justification, righteousness. So, how do we unpack this? Luther himself... Uh, wrestled with this idea for a while. He's someone who saw the two prophets teaching to be in opposition, at least for a while. I think he called James a right straw book, something to that effect. Um, why did Luther call the book of James a right straw book, of kind of an old English way of describing it? He, Luther, insisted that Paul's view was correct, that the, that, that the just shall live by faith. Uh, using the Romans one seventeen passage and highlighting it because it was quoting Habakkuk. That was that was one of Luther's favorite uh, verses, right? The just shall live by faith. And yet, when Luther read through the book of James, he saw this this um, uh, this kind of this dichotomy, this this troubling um, 
teaching about the, the that uh, that works accompany faith. Luther belittled, actually belittled James' epistle, calling it an epistle of straw. I think he literally said a right strawy book, but epistle of straw was basically what he's referring to. And such an approach to the two authors, I think, is not necessary. I, I think Luther may have actually uh, come to terms later on, but um, I need to go back and read Luther a little more carefully to see if that's the case. But we know now, we know now, regardless of whether Luther came to this conclusion or not, we we ourselves know that when the literary context of each of the authors is examined, Paul and James, that it can be demonstrated that there's actually no contradiction, right? Top of page 84, let's take a bite out of this um, uh, before we break it off and leave the rest for next week. The key, I think, to understanding these two seemingly contradictory authors is to understand how each uses the terms justified faith and works. In other words, I've, I'm, I'm a huge proponent that context helps to define the words that are used in any given passage. If an author uses a word one way in one passage, sometimes it's dangerous to take that meaning and just automatically assume that it, perhaps a different author is using the same Greek word the same way that the other author did. So let's look at this for a moment. I hope this isn't confusing. I've created this little table uh, for us to, to kind of um, describe what I'm seeing here between these two authors. Now, um, let's look at these words. Justified, faith, and works. Just pick on those three. In, my, in the first uh, box, the table under the label Paul, we've got faith, works, and justified. Using Paul, we can see that Paul uses faith to describe or to, defi uh, to be defined as genuine faith and reliance upon God for salvation. Whereas James, he's not disagreeing with Paul. Rather, he's using the word faith there, I think it's the Greek word pistis, in a different way. He's, he's, he's using a different usage of the same Greek word. And what I think James is using it as is mental assent that could fail to affect one's actions. Mental assent. In other words, mere um, uh, agreement in one's mind. He's calling that word, he's using that word faith. He said, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. Therefore, the type of faith that's, that's minus works is a faith that's in your head only, in, in essence. So it's mental assent that could fail to affect one's actions. In other words, it's a faith that, that fails to lead to works. It's a faith that is uh, empty, empty faith. That's what I think how James is describing and using the word pistis there. Then we go on. Let's look at works, which is usually the Greek word uh, ergon. Um, works in Paul, at least in the... the the passage in Galatians, is described or defined as works apart from faith that one believes are able to or help make him a genuine covenant member. In Paul's letters, these works would include the what, what Paul describes as works of the law. In other words, covenant of circumcision that was being imposed on Gentiles for the sake of supposedly turning them into covenant members. These would be described as works in Paul's letter. Uh, the works according to the flesh, the preoccupation with one's ethnicity, the preoccupation with Torah maintenance after one becomes a, a legally recognized Jew in the first century. These are works. These are works. What, what Christians today sometimes simply call good works. But what Paul more sharply defined as works done in accordance with the Torah as one self-identified 
as a covenant member via the covenant of circumcision, via one's ethnicity and relationship to uh, the physical family clan known as Israel or sons of Jacob. All of that is subsumed under the term works in Paul. By comparison, when we look at James, we've got this idea of works. It's the same Greek word, ergon, but it's works that can be done through faith, which attest to genuine faith. So the word itself, works, can sometimes be either something that's a, a detriment or something that is helpful. It's either something that's going to hurt you or something that's going to help you. It's either going to be something that's going to... Um, uh, uh, what what's this, what word I want to say? It's either going to um, lead to your downfall and to your blindness, or it's going to actually demonstrate and vindicate your actual righteousness. And so James is just basically trying to demonstrate that it's the same Greek word, ergon, that works in his letter, in his limited usage, or specific usage, is description of these good works, these, this, this, these, uh, what do we say, um, of disobedience that is done within the scope of being count as for, counted as forensically righteous already. In other words, with, within the, the realm of genuine faith. So it's, it works in James are commensurate with genuine faith. And then lastly, the word justified, uh, that's the dikaiosune word, I believe, in the Greek that Paul's using. In Paul's letters, oftentimes he's talking about being declared righteous by God because of your trust in God's means of salvation. Declared righteous by God because of your trust in God's means of salvation. And then in James, the same Greek word, dikaiosune, is used, used to define this idea of uh, show to be righteous as evidence by your actions. Show to be righteous as evidence by your actions. In other words, it's a, it's a type of righteousness that you yourself make up by your own actions or or it could be more naturally a type of righteousness that is the evidence of your being righteous so in paul it's kind of the the, the front end of the relationship that we uh have with god we enter into a relationship with god and we're declared righteous at the beginning of our relationship the genuine relationship with God, the genuine and lasting relationship with God, this righteousness that God recognizes. In other words, the moment of salvation, if we could call it, call it the starting point, when our eyes are actually opened and we actually become a child of God, a son of Abraham, that's justified. But then in James, there's this, this concept that at the end of days, at the day of judgment, God is actually going to declare us and, and recognize that we are also justified, that we are righteous because the actions uh, that we demonstrate are proof of the genuine faith that we uh, enjoined upon or that we uh, in, engaged in at the very beginning of our salvation experience. Did I lose anyone? Did I lose anyone? I hope not. In essence, what I'm trying to say is that righteousness is ours from start to finish. Righteousness is ours from start to finish. And I think James Wright, uh, in, I'm sorry, not James Wright, N.T. Wright is a, f a popular for um, articulating this idea that righteousness in Paul is often not merely a static concept describing salvation, but rather it is a di also a, a, a dynamic quality that God assigns to a person as they live out the life of faith, as they walk in accordance with God's commandments, and ultimately that God will uh, uh, assign a person 
when they meet God in eternity. It's the idea that God has God will glorify us in eternity. So I think what I'll do is um, I think I'll stop here in the commentary with the uh, table. I'll stop at the table, and next week we'll pick up our teaching again uh, at uh, with the paragraph starting with Paul emphasize that we're saved by faith in Yeshua. So, in closing, um, let me real quick just uh, remind everyone that we're in the middle of the High Holy Days um, and that uh, we've just finished uh, um, participating in Yom Kippur this week and next week we will be turning into Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. I highly uh, suggest that if you can enjoy, uh, can engage in a, 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 a congregation where they're walking into the festivals, I highly recommend that you join such a congregation, that you um, go visit them during the High Holy Days at the very least, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's really, <coughs> excuse me, it's really, uh, 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 really the best way for God to continue to show you and demonstrate um, his ongoing faithfulness to you is through the, the festivals and through the, the Sabbaths that he's given to us. It's a, it's a wonderful way to engage in behavioral righteousness in God's sight. It's also a wonderful way to um, uh, meet, meet people who are like-minded in Messiah, to, to build one another up in Messiah, uh, to fellowship one with another, and to um, just, just uh, develop the, the right kinds of relationships that God would have us have uh, Jews and Gentiles, one with another. So uh, don't neglect going out to the Holy Days, going out to your congregation, uh, visiting your congregation, okay? Attendance. Let's close in prayer tonight, and uh, I'll leave the uh, room open for those who are still in live class. If you want to stay with me, we'll just chat for another 10 or 15 minutes, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for um, the study. I thank you for the uh, privilege of, of writing and the... Um, the responsibility of teaching, and Lord, I pray that you'll continue to hold me to an accountability, uh, not only with uh, the leaders that I'm in in, in relationship with, uh, my, my local congregation, etc., but also, Lord, to be accountable to the students, those who I uh, dialogue with on a weekly basis, uh, those who uh, join me each week via uh, Skype and Torah study. Lord, it's such a privilege to be able to study with them and to um, be blessed by them. Raise us up, O Lord. Strengthen us. Cause us to declare the name of Messiah Yeshua with boldness, with passion, with a firm uh, resolution that we will not yield to sin, that we will not give in to the uh, the watered-down um, standards that are all around us in the world today, that we will not um, uh, yield to uh, uh, unrighteousness and to wickedness, but that, Lord, we will, uh, like the psalmist said, we'll hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Thank you, Father, for all of these good promises that you've given to us, that you've spoken to us, that you've uh, preserved for us in your word. We'll be careful, Lord, to lay hold of them by faith in Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to 
serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.